0: I contradict myself a lot when I say that the reason I came back to chickens is because they don't talk back and so on. And then I say I go out a lot and I network. I, I really enjoy engaging with people and I have found that that benefits, whether that's through VFF, through my own position.
1: Well, good day. Welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Holly Laleve. Thanks for joining us. This must be episode, gosh, it's nearly episode 50 for the year, which is crazy. So for anyone, if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. Each week we sit down with someone new and different and hear the extraordinary stories of all kinds of people who are involved in our food and fibre system. This week we're sitting down and recording at Danielle Kuchinotta's family farm in Werribee South. So close to the edge of Melbourne that you can literally, on a clear day, see the CBD. Danielle's farm is on the traditional lands of the Bunarong and Wadawurrung people and would like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well, it was the first time that I've met Danielle in person, so it was awesome to feed off her enthusiasm and infection that she's got for everything relating to agriculture. And I think oh, well, there's a few things, but... Danielle talks about how as a teenager she obviously worked on the farm alongside her sister and she thought she would get as far away from agriculture as possible but fast forward a few years and down the track and different opportunities opened up and she's always loved her chickens always loved her community and had a huge love of her family as well and it's amazing how things work out she's now the youngest ever vice president of the Victorian Farmers Federation chair of their child's safety on farm steering committee and in this episode we chat about a lot of topics Um, everything from her interests in hospitality and events and how that's actually come to life on their farm on the outskirts of Melbourne and just why she's so passionate about making sure that our farms are safer and doing it in a way that's really practical and makes sense for those people so rather than me beating on about this let's jump on in Danielle Cucinota, you're a third generation egg farmer, vice president of the Victorian Farmers Federation. And I think probably importantly a mum as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm keen to sit down and chat with you today about a few different things, farm safety, how you got involved in our advocacy, your kind of avenues from growing up in and around Werribee here to then uh, come back. So how are you and where
0: are we? Yeah, so... There's a lot in that. Um, so, third generation egg farmer, um, Werribee South, so that's where the farm is. Live in Werribee, um, just two minutes down the road, actually.
1: As a kid, and you said you were hell-bent on mm-hmm. not being involved in the farm. So, what is it? what was it as a kid that made Daniel fall in love with the farm here?
0: Fall in love with it later, or not well, love it? Well...
1: No, no, like as a kid, what was it? What are your happy memories from being around Oh,
0: absolutely. Okay, yeah. So my sister and I would ride our bikes um, throughout the farm and, and, you know, these are the days where we didn't have fencing lines and we would ride through the paddocks because we're surrounded by horticulture here. So we'd ride our bikes through. Um, I've actually fallen in chicken manure before, like I mean drenched in it to the point that I got hosed down by my grandparents. That is a great memory, although I regretted it at that moment. Um, we loved the fact that, you know, we spent so much time with our family. My grandmother would make lunch, like, I mean, hot meal lunches, bring that out and all the staff, all the family would eat together. That was really special. Um, you know, my sister and I would fall asleep on, my mum would go collecting eggs at the time because that wasn't automated back then and we would fall asleep on the trolleys and and we would just, we'd have little fingers and dad would be like, you can do the little stamping and the little, you know, fixing of the eggs or getting the little um, pullet eggs and putting them in the the cartons at the time. It was just always a, my sister and I are really close and that was something that, obviously created that it's just we've spent every waking moment together and we still do to this day
1: that's really cool so family is obviously a huge part but what was it then that turned you away from it why do you want to get as far away from here as possible
0: yeah so then I got to my uh, teenage years where my sister and I sharing a bathroom was quite miserable for everybody so I mean that probably had nothing to do with the farm and more to do with the fact that my sister and I were then looking for our own independence so who were we What, what were we good at Um, we'd always work together and we work so well in sync which is probably why we've come back but it was that period of finding out who we were and what we wanted to do my dad was also really um, strong on getting educated in something outside of farming because there's so much regulation around farming he was never sure and we're still not sure to this day you know things can change tomorrow based on legislation or regulation and will we still exist Um, and I think the other part was egg farming was not that sexy or appealing when you'd go to like careers day and they're like, so what do your parents do? And people would be like, oh, my mum and dad, they're a doctor or, you know, they, they are an accountant and maybe that's not that sexy either when I
2: think about <laughs> it. But, you
0: know, I just, saying egg farmer was just not that appealing I remember in school. So, it I don't know if I was kind of embarrassed or if I was kind of just unsure and it probably didn't help I'm a peri-urban location so most I'm not from a community where predominantly um, farmers I wasn't going to school with children that also had parents as farmers so that was kind of I was the odd one out in this cycle so anyway I tried to do everything I could to not be there and also I watched my parents and my grandparents work 24 hours seven days a week like you don't get to go anywhere you don't get to do anything it's it wasn't automated back then it was really difficult in summer because one one or two or three consecutive hot days meant my grandfather was on top of the tin roofs with a hose trying to cool down sheds. So that was as a kid, I was like, "That's just not the life I want to live. Um fast forward you know twenty or so years, and a lot of technology has come our way. So it's a lot more appealing these days.
1: I want to jump back to the piece because this is something I really struggled with recently in New Zealand, um, and i was I was over there for the Australian Real Leadership Program, but, when we'd meet new people, we'd just run around the room and it was like, introduce yourself and what you do. And you were just talking then in terms of when it came to careers days and people talking about they're a lawyer or an accountant. Like, people know kind of what they do, but what actually do they do is probably really hard for people. But nowadays, because you talk to lots of kids and stuff, when it comes to introducing yourself, do you talk to the what? Or, like, how do you actually introduce what it is and what a day and what your life looks like as an egg farmer?
0: Yeah, so I talk about more so my why, because there's something really special and and rewarding in knowing I feed my local community. And really understanding why my grandparents migrated from Cyprus to Australia is also helpful because my grandparents migrated because their little um, villages in Cyprus didn't have access to food like they were going through wars at the time and and going hungry was common so they they left um and covid actually exacerbated that feeling for us because when the shelves got stripped and that feeling of like oh wow is there going to be food and are we going to eat i you know, there was something really satisfying in knowing that we were okay and we were going to help our community by continuing to feed our community through egg production. And not only that, but we you still had the opportunity to do the old-school bartering system. So whilst we weren't necessarily exchanging money, but I would be calling up Giovanni and I was like, so I need some broccoli and some lettuce and I need some of this. And and he's like, yeah, okay, cool. And he'd come with his, you know, mixed box of greens of the things they produce. And then I would be like, okay, what do you need for eggs? Do you need some – because – he's the farm manager but do you need them for for who else do you need it for and and you had that bartering system which is very old school I get that but COVID allowed for us to see that and I tell kids now that no matter whatever happens in the world the truth is, is everyone needs to eat and there's something so special about that I mean it is a hard job and egg farming is still not that glamorous but I would say I I wouldn't change it for the world now and I think I just need to be able to better explain my why to the generation beyond me, rather than maybe what the job actually is.
1: On that food security piece, the community, but like I'm slightly biased because I just feel this area of Victoria and kind of this part of the world. You, in terms of where and the opportunities between uh, Melbourne, I was going to say city between Melbourne and Geelong is like a really unique area. You've got recycled water coming out from. Western Melbourne, which can be used. You've then got horticulture, you've got meatworks, you've got an international airport out of Avalon plus the ports and things, like and then you've got five million people twenty Ks up the road. Like it's a pretty amazing spot to farm.
0: Yeah, I mean you've basically summed it up. There's so many opportunities for agriculture out here. Keeping in mind when my grandparents purchased this property, it was considered rural Victoria and the banks are still a bit of a pain because they act as if our, you know, bank transfers can't go through for so many days and the internet is still a bit shonky and we still experience um some issues that you would experience in traditional regional Victoria. But the truth is, is getting staff is easier because there are people on our doorstep able to work, and and we obviously. Uh, adjusted our grading floor times to work in with mums dropping off school so we don't actually start till 9 30 and we finish by about 2 30 so we adjusted that so we could capture a market that was on our doorstep um there are many opportunities to having agriculture in Werribee South like the fact of low transport miles easy access to our clientele but then I would say to you, there's also some really um there's some consequences to it as well because I mean, our rates are so high because our land is worth um, uh, extensive. Amounts due to the fact that it's like this one pocket. Keeping in mind it's Greenwich, so you can't sell it for property development anyway. Um, And it's also probably why a lot of the family farms around here are continuing because we have the ability to expand, but not necessarily by living on the farm. But because, you know, like I said, two minutes down the road, I live with my husband and my child, so we don't need to live on the farm. And It also gives me opportunity, like daycare access is so easy for me, Um, whereas traditionally in regional Victoria, it's just not. So, so many benefits, but in saying that, I mean, yeah, no, it's actually just got a lot of benefits, I won't lie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, Go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au dot com dot au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you.
1: I, I want to shift to talk about your involvement with that infamous trip to Sydney that you yep. sat, sat in the room for. But so you, your old man, like, has he always been really active, involved in the in the actual industry space away from the farm?
0: Yeah. So, um. I couldn't pinpoint it. My dad, well, he will be finishing up as egg group president at the VFF shortly because his term is completed. Um, He has been involved in advocacy and the protection of almost our farm but then looking after other egg farms and and other Victorian farms for that matter Um, early, I'd say mid to early 2000s, Um, my Dad and my uncle, they so they're the two sons, obviously my grandparents, and they kind of – they play to their strengths. So my uncle's really well – Um, suited for operations and that kind of stuff on our farm, whereas my dad really focused on how do we protect our farm and how do we build on our business because eventually with his two daughters, he was like, I need to be able to find other streams of income because we'll now, we'll have two other bodies to feed and we want to include our community so he then used his skill set to be networking and, and find buyers of our eggs because back in those days we were only selling so many to our local community um, and then he saw an opportunity and advocacy and he, he, he went for that and he wanted to better protect his farming rights and then he just – the only reason I got invited to Sydney is I genuinely believe is because I was his daughter. That was it, not because I had any skill set by any stretch, but we eventually got there with that, so don't stress. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and looking back on that trip, though, like you're saying you don't think you had any skill set. Is there something which you brought to that room which was different and that was the reason you were there?
0: Um, Dad just said to me, you don't need to know anything, you just got to be the egg farmer. He's like, sometimes, you, you know, people think to do advocacy you've got to understand on how to be a politician or how to how to do advocacy or have gone and studied policy in, in uni. And he said, sometimes there's something really unique about just being the egg farmer sitting in that room. And he said, sometimes you just understand the real practicalities of the things that you need. And that's, and also it was a chance to learn and grow. And I think for the first time ever, dad would say, I didn't speak as much as usual. (laughs) And, um, I had the opportunity to meet young people in the industry who i am really good friends with now and even to the point jess in south australia who is just this phenomenal powerhouse of knowledge we, we had a couple issues with our shell quality at one point on the farm and i was like oh i'm just gonna call jess from south australia and facetime her and she was like yeah if you just do a little this this and this and change this and sure enough we had a problem solved instantly just through the connections and network that i had from originally Sydney trip.
1: For you to come back into the business, I find it really interesting that you said like, you, because of COVID, and we are jumping around a little bit, but because of COVID, your dad was actually, like, we've let so many people off. It's not right to bring you in. Yeah. How did that actually sit with you? Like in terms of, yeah, like yeah. it would have made things difficult for you as well, wouldn't
0: it? Yeah. So I guess I was so fortunate. My husband was still working. So we were already on one income. Due to maternity leave. Um my husband was still working with no problems. He was still considered uh I can't remember what they called it at the time, but still considered Essential. Essential. Thank you. That's yep that one for him. <laughs> and um I and dad didn't say you couldn't, he just said this is the consequence if you do come back. And he also said, you know, you'll never get this opportunity again to spend so much time with Ariana. Now in saying that, it just meant I didn't have a paid job to come back to. I was coming every day on the farm with my daughter and she got to experience things that almost felt like the days Renee and I, my sister and I had, and it was empty. There was no one around. It was She was playing on the farm. She had the opportunity. There weren't really trucks and things coming through unless absolutely necessary.
1: Coming forward, so through that time, then you decided you'd throw your hat in the ring for the VFF. Youngest vice president that they've ever had. Mm. Walking into the boardroom, like, I think agriculture, full stop. Like, Actually, no, just any boardroom or anything like that can be an intimidating environment. What was it like? campaigning because you've got to get the support of the members to actually get your seat at the table and then be elected in what yeah. was that like as a 20 28 year old
0: yeah so uh, my campaign manager would absolutely have been my father um <laughs> he was he's probably the reason i am sitting there today because the truth was is i didn't have a network of people um i had a couple farmers who called up and said we'd seen some of the stuff you did and that was that was the only reason i got asked and I got asked, I think, also because of how much work my father had done previously. So he was absolutely the campaign manager. He was the one making the phone calls. And I was like, there is no way I'm going to win. I don't know a soul in in Victorian farmer land. I just, I know my 24 egg farmers. I don't, and I don't, don't even know if they're going to vote for me. I mean, what, why would they? Um, and then... Dad made a few phone calls and I think people respected my father and that's where some votes come from. And I obviously did my videos and I I did the – the forums to tell people what I believed in but in saying that I was completely ignorant like I had no idea I clearly didn't read the PD because I didn't know I had to sit on the board I just genuinely thought I was gonna do advocacy like I thought I was going to talk about the practicalities of farming and the experiences we have and do that advocacy policy piece but not sit on the board. So when I won, number one, I was shocked. And then when I walked into a boardroom, I thought, no, just no, this is not for me. Like this is, what do I know about governance and the way that this is going to run and the strategy of the VFF? I mean, I don't even have a history with the VFF. And then I got some wonderful words of advice because um, I got told to call some ex- presidents vice presidents board members because they were like you're there now and my mum was like you are no quitter so you better get your shit together and um I was like okay so I called up um some ex high profile VFF people and some of the best words of advice were one it's a marathon it's it's not a sprint it's a marathon um spend your time communicating engaging getting to know people and I mean genuinely getting to know them and their problems and also like you get your connect like spend it really connecting with people around the board and I have to say the board was so supportive like I had people calling Tim Kingmar was probably one of the first and I mean it probably helped we came both from intensive sectors because he said to me you know, we're here for you. Like, what do you need? Because we all want the same thing. We want Victorian advocacy for farmers to be in the right direction. We want to look after each other. We want the VFF to continue and be sustainable. And Tim was probably the first one who ever reached out. And again, because of my father and said, we will walk you through this. But in saying that, I had support across the whole board and from internally. And yeah, we just made it work. But... I mean, I should have read the PD. That's that's probably <laughs> what I would say.
1: Besides the learning of reading the PD when you apply for a job, uh, what have you learned, and from being in the role now for a couple of years, like what have you really gained from it? But like, why is it so important to throw yourself in that deep end?
0: Yeah. So I I guess I'm con- I've continued to throw myself in the deep end because I truly believe in it. Like there is. And as a caged egg farmer, which is controversial in itself, there is so much regulation put on us and, you know, people who don't necessarily understand the practicalities of farming and the reasons why certain things exist and then rules are made for us without necessarily having as much input as maybe we'd like. So the VFF is a strong united voice on that and it's really important that we continue someone like, something like the VFF in our case in Victoria because ideally it's to protect our farmers and we're so busy day to day so if I wasn't the vice president I mean truly would I be keeping up with all the policy and advocacy that we're doing and the legislation coming out and the regulations and no I just wouldn't so that's where like the staff of the organization are just so important because it is their day-to-day activities and us as farmers it's important for us to sit there because it allows us us to give those real practical pieces of advice. Us, we're setting the policy and then it allows our presidents, vice presidents, the commodity presidents to really act on our behalf but do it in a way that's best for Victorian agriculture overall. So I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world but in saying that, I mean, I don't know if I'll win. We'll find <laughs> out. In terms of
1: a quote I heard recently was that the perfect world doesn't exist so you've got to be ready to compromise. Um, for for you guys like as an industry like you're representing everyone the person who's got 50 chooks down the road to the big big end of town producers like why is it important like that you guys are able to bring those differing perspectives in kind of i guess into the bigger conversation which is food um on people's plates on supermarket shelves in australia
0: yeah, because if you're not engaged and we don't have all the different voices, then it's, then someone else will set the policy for you. So it's re- really important we engage and from a VFF perspective the different um, sizes of farms, the different backgrounds of farms, um, the different regions, the different needs, because if, if the voice isn't heard, then how do we know there's a special need or requirement in Werribee South, for instance? Um, it's just for us it's about getting that collective voice and in saying that sure there's times that we have to compromise but I mean I feel like as an agricultural industry, we've compromised for so long there's got to be times where we're just simply standing up for what is right by agriculture and that may not be what politicians or the government want to hear but we're not representing them we're representing farmers and sometimes you just got to say what's right
1: it seems like it's a pretty interesting time for ag. Like, I think we're such a, an industry of such humble people, but actually you look at what's happening around the world, the New Zealands, the Netherlands, et cetera, unless you're getting farmers and people involved in these conversations and on the front foot of what's actually happening, the, the prospects of what could be dictated to ag in the next 10 to 30 years is pretty scary.
0: <laughs> yeah, so my own farm, by um, possibility... Shortly, I will find out in a number of months, may not exist in 10 years. So the phase out of caged eggs, if that goes through, um, I'll have 10 years to work out what my next job will be. So this is where I would say, and then if you look at overseas, because we've got egg farmers that we are quite close with from overseas and Germany being one of them, um, we hosted their kids as like an exchange back when my sister and I were younger and I went and visited the egg farm and they have no cage systems in Central Europe. And it's just so interesting because it's all good and well in theory, but all they do is truck their eggs in from Eastern Europe now. We don't have that opportunity in Australia. So if you go and phase out a system or you can't use a particular chemical that grain farmers might use or whatever the particular scenario is, you look at europe and that's that's okay but they are surrounded by countries everywhere and they have the opportunity to import or truck things over and then if you look at say again in my case the caged egg systems were all phased out in central europe well i mean they've got nothing but avian influenza problems at the moment they're culling birds because it's a huge biosecurity risk um there's pros and cons to systems in place and if we talk about food security we don't have too many opportunities to be importing eggs um or if we do it's going to simply be from asian countries and i mean i would personally say i'd take my qa programs of australian eggs before i took my qa programs of our neighboring countries so Yeah, this is where I'd say to you, it's just important from an advocacy piece. Despite whether you're a free-range farmer, caged egg farmer, barn egg farmer, for instance, it's really important because we all play this part in a big, large circle of the supply chain. And this is where I think the VFF has gotten really proactive the last two years. I've got the dairy farmer who's also fighting for caged eggs because – not because they have caged eggs on their farm because they know it sets precedence for the next bit of regulation and the part after that. So while we might be talking sow stalls, caged eggs today, you might be talking Bobby calves in two years time. So this is where advocacy as a united front is really important. And so
1: why does intensive ag exist?
0: Because you simply have to feed a community of people and it has to be affordable. Like they're, it's all good and well to talk about these things from a, when you're in a luxurious position. But if you take COVID, like the the first days of COVID, when things got stripped off the shelf, I'm telling you now, every phone call we had, not a single person cared if it was a cage deck, a free range egg a barn egg a whatever pasture raised organic you know all the wonderful marketing things in the world as long as they had access to safe affordable proteins in wherever they were buying it from they weren't phased what kind of egg it was it's only because as a community we have the luxury to decide what we also want to be really mindful of is we don't take that away from people who don't have the luxury to decide and my local community um Wyndham is a low socioeconomic area so we sell a lot of caged eggs because we're talking about maybe one income we're talking about you know the cost of living is dramatically rising mortgages so on and so forth so if a mum and her two kids come into our place and they can buy a tray of eggs for a couple dollars more than they can buy one dozen of free-range eggs she as the mother will generally still choose that affordable protein and one thing we make sure as our own farm, is we give assurances, we do our QA programs, we talk to our consumers and we make sure they understand we are still looking after our animals. Yes, cages can sometimes feel confronting and they're also nothing like the videos, Um, but they trust us as the farmers and that's pretty special. And I like the fact that, you know, you're not breaking the bank every time you go buy an egg. Eggs are still affordable for most people despite what – System you use, and that's where we just have to be careful because it's really easy to make a decision when you're on 200k and above. But my local community are not on 200k and above. You might be a combined income of seventy or eighty thousand in my local community. So price matters out here.
1: Mm. I think for me, like I've I've definitely had my eyes open. We've been doing some stuff uh, around like the chicken meat industry and and looking at intensive ag. And I kind of just had this like I walked into the chicken shed and initially it was like holy shit like there is a lot of chickens in here um <laughs> mm-hmm. but then i think yeah it starts to create that conversation which is one that we don't actually have which is around this food insecurity people actually not getting enough food here in australia like you've got north of a million people every month who food bank is supporting with their work um it's crazy but it's part of i guess the world of food that we don't actually really talk about we can talk to the premium side and creating high quality goods, but also too you need to provide food for the lowest kind of levels as well, don't you?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I sit on the, which is kind of interesting through the VFF. I sit on the food relief task force in Victoria with your big food banks, Oz Harvest, um, Vic Health. And, and that really opened my eyes because food bank statistics came out. 33% of Victorians go to bed with food insecurity. That's 33% of our state like that is insane amount of numbers and I mean sure it was exacerbated through COVID and it's been exacerbated through cost of living but this is where intensive agriculture despite the production itself is necessary because one It's intensive because it's organized, it's automated, it's highly technologically based. Sure, it's not for everyone and I will not say to you every single person has to engage in buying intensive agriculture, but in saying that, you have options. You can go and buy your really slow uh, grass-fed and so on and so forth, all the marketing things, whatever it is that you want, but it's just this notion of we take that away from people who don't have choice that just simply doesn't sit right with me. And I think that's where I'd say, and I I encourage this to everyone, call up the farmer. I mean, I'm happy to talk about my production system. I would spend hours talking about caged eggs and the the technologies that exist and the fact that where we're heading in technology and where we're going as a, as an industry. And, and the fact that every egg farmer, free range cage whatever or chicken meat farmer or pig farmer I know like I said earlier this is 24 hours seven days a week job like you are not I got married in winter because my dad was like uh no spring summer weddings like 40 degrees like you just simply we we may not be able to make it like my dad would be more concerned about the chickens because sure I mean he doesn't want to see 30,000 birds um Cold because it got a bit too hot and he wasn't here to set the, reset the water or reset the cooling systems if he needed. And I can, one fun fact I always give people is our chickens got air conditioning before my sister and I did. So if anyone says my dad doesn't care about those birds before he cares about his own two daughters, they're kidding themselves because we used to sit in the sheds to get cool because my sister and I didn't have air conditioning at home so those chickens fine but in saying that there is choice out there so if it's not for you cool but don't take that away from other people
1: yeah i think it's a really interesting part maybe we can do a bit more of a deep dive later on that um i want to chat about farm safety because this is another thing which you've been involved in and fairly passionate about and i'd be curious to know has it have you become like more interested more passionate about it since you had a daughter
0: well, I'm as I said earlier, dad gave me the OH&S part of the, the farm and our other parts of the business. So I became interested during that part because I was like, okay, so how do our oh systems work? How are we looking after our staff? And also how are we protecting my own dad? Because we put rules and regs in our farm for our staff, which they follow and, and an SOP, but does my dad? actually follow it because for some reason my dad thinks he's the boss which sure he is but I mean is he using the goggles when he should be or is he you know using the safety equipment so it was also about engaging that conversation and absolutely when my daughter was born we had to reconsider how this farm worked and because what my sister and I were allowed to do versus what my dad and my uncle were allowed to do what my daughter is allowed to do on this farm all very different because you just simply understand that driving a tractor when you're three or like sitting on dad's like you just can't do that anymore I mean, we don't have shotguns on our farm anymore, but you've got to be extra precautious. They used to just sit on our dining table in my grandparents' house, like on a little mantelpiece. Like as a kid, I didn't think twice about it, but genuinely that's what happened. There'd be no way in my mother would kill someone now, like as in my sister or I for leaving, even the fact that my daughter might not have her high vis on. So... It just simply, there's been cultural change and then it became extra important when my own daughter was going to be walking around our farm, engaging in going into the sheds, knowing where the packing machines are. And yeah, and it's not just my child that's important, it's all the children.
1: And that leads me into, you were chair of the Child Safety Steering Committee as part of the Making Our Farm Safer initiative. So what was that looking to achieve?
0: Um, so it set out originally because, well, one we kind of had this gap in the MoFs team. So MoFs look do a phenomenal job not of doing maths. MoFs. No, yeah. not <laughs> maths, sorry guys. Um, MoFs they do a phenomenal uh, job of going out on farm, doing farm safety, um, engaging in rural communities, and looking after people and staff and so on. But th- we would we were aimed at adults, and then statistics did come out and. I couldn't even tell you what it was, how many children, unfortunately, get injured. But the point is is one is too many. The, the, The number has to be zero. And when I did become vice president, there was the incident on Christmas or Boxing Day, I can't remember, where the child was injured from being on a quad bike. And I remember thinking like these are the things that just have to be prevented and we're in a position of influence at the VFF so how do we use a position of influence to to get positive results and just naturally I mean having a child I obviously wanted to chair that and Emma um, our president kindly was like yep okay if you would like that that that's a role and responsibility you can have and We got a steering committee full of grandparents and parents, which is great. Like it's been so much fun and talking about like hard truths of what happens on farm and really understanding, because like I said, my daughter doesn't live on our farm, but they're, you know, Catherine, who is a potato farmer, her three little ones do live on the farm and that's their backyard. So how do we as an industry... Uh, set better rules and boundaries for that and then what how do we do it so then the steering committee looked at a guidebook we looked at how do we engage with our farmers so podcasts and how do we do a um, how do we get the conversation going is basically what it was and cultural change is time it's not here's a guidebook and you're just going to change all the rules on your farm tomorrow it's about starting a conversation it's about having influential people in the industry advocate on behalf of child safety and then also getting kids involved because that's really important when a kid turns around to their parent and says oh mum, dad I'm not really meant to be doing that that that's where parents like okay like, uh, yep, all right, cool. You're not meant to be driving that tractor at 13, even though sometimes we're just in this space. So <laughs> I would just say, you know, there, there are guidebooks, there are podcasts, there's um, engagement pieces. Like we have just been working around the clock and it's just such an important issue.
1: And I think like on that, in terms of you can set the rules, you can set the regulation around it, but it has to be, like as you said, a cultural shift in terms of, like Alex Thomas does it in her work of plant a seed for safety it's actually about just getting for her work it's getting people home alive at the end of the day like this is actually just keeping your kids alive in your place of work and I think like this well not even scary but the the reality of it now is the legislation that's been introduced whether it's a worker whether it's your child whether it's someone else's kid um the implications if something actually happens on your farm it's huge fines, huge jail time like it's it's and, not to be sneezed at now,
0: and it's, I don't even think it's the it's the penalties because the penalties is one thing, but if you if you lose a child, you will live with that forever. And I it don't think it matters how much the penalty actually is. I think the the biggest penalty will be losing a child or injuring them, and the guilt that comes with that. And that's for me as the mum. It's like I don't want to see my daughter hurt because because for a moment I wasn't. I was a bit blasé about some of the rules on our farm. And the other thing that was really important for us as a steering committee was engaging with with the other side of the coin. So we talk about how we look after safety on farm and, and what what do we do on farm and how do we do it with our grandparents and our parents. But what we did was um, Dr. Warwick Teague, who is the head of trauma and burns unit, I believe, at the Royal Children's Hospital, what a phenomenal insight to understanding that when children if they are injured what happens to them and him telling his side of the story so once they airlifted in and they dropped down on the royal children's hospital the experience for him and his team was just eye-opening and he was a massive advocate and still is for that change because i mean we said one of our goals in the steering committee was to put Dr. Warwick Teague out of a job because he would be pretty happy with that. So if he's not having any children airlifted into farm from farm, sorry, and born into the Royal Children's Hospital, he said he'd be a pretty happy man because he would go and find something else to do, but until that day, unfortunately, he's got a lot of work to do, and he said, he said, it's not only just the child that they are, you know, concerned about. He's like, it's the mum or the dad that gets airlifted in with them. It's the other children sitting in that um, helicopter. It's it's this entire psychological concern that comes with that. So for us, like we said, it's a, it, we have an influence. We have a position of power, if you will, in an, in an agricultural advocacy perspective, and we need to... It was just absolutely imperative that we use that for all the right reasons.
1: And so if you had a wand and you could make one change which is going to have an impact, what would it be?
0: That we can have these conversations at the very least, like that that parents and children are discussing things that are appropriate and not appropriate on their particular farm.
1: Mm. And I don't think that's that... You don't need a wand for that.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, my big wand moment will put Dr. Warwick Teague out of a job, <laughs> yeah. but, um, that, but I'll start a little bit smaller than that and that will eventuate to my big magic moment.
1: <laughs> I've got two more questions I want to ask you. One, uh, like they bo- well, they both come from previous people on the podcast, kind of. One's mine, one's from a previous person, but what do you do outside your day job that benefits you in your career?
0: Oh, great question. Was that your question or someone nah, else? No, that's someone
1: else's platform. Oh, I a, asked it.
0: Okay, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, Outside of my day job.
1: Yeah, that benefits you in your career.
0: My career as VFF or my career as eggs? Oh, you
1: can define it as you like.
0: I network a lot. Like as in whether that's through industry or not through industry. Um, So... I contradict myself a lot when I say that the reason I came back to chickens is because they don't talk back and so on. And then I say I go out a lot and I network. I I really enjoy engaging with people and I have found that that benefits, whether that's through VFF, through my own um, position. I join lots of committees and task force and, and being on, you know, say the food relief task force. Like... I don't know how agricultural advocacy based that is, but when the opportunity came, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. And that's probably something I've always done. When an opportunity arises, I always say yes. And that's how my crazy little journey has ended to these positions.
1: (laughs) And it's really only just getting started too.
0: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) God only knows in 10 years.
1: (laughs) One final question. You get the chance to go and talk to year 10 students about a career in agriculture, what would you say to them?
0: Oh, I do get to do this all the time. Oh, you that'd
1: yeah. be a good answer then. One,
0: let the world say no to you, not you say no to the world. So that comes back to my opportunity-based stuff. Um, I, I say yes to the opportunities to fake it till you make it I didn't have a goddamn clue what I was doing on that board when I got there Um, but you sit there and if you're willing to learn and you're willing to grow and you don't have any set precedents on the way you're going to do things then you will make it and it's okay to have imposter syndrome even the most powerful influential people have imposter syndrome still so we walk into a networking event with people all the time and those senators and politicians, sometimes they have no idea what's going on as well. So sometimes that's okay.
1: Perfect. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for sitting down and having a chat with us.
0: Thank you. It was a been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I, I just love every week sitting down with people from all walks of life and just hearing their stories and kind of weaving the way through from their early years and early involvement in Danielle's case wanting to get away from agriculture but then ultimately coming back in and not just being involved at a community or and a farm level but actually involved at the state level as well and just remarkable what she's doing and going on to do and I think a huge part which has stuck out for me was just that importance of backing yourself but surrounding yourself with the people and being willing to ask the questions um, of those around you. And I think the other part, and as a part of agriculture which I just keep learning more and more about, is this role of intensive agriculture. And I think as Danielle touched on, that different areas of society and different demographics are looking for different products. And I think it's one of the things which makes agriculture so complex and uh, can be so divisive, but also rich in conversation and discussion. So it's something which I am looking forward to continuing and... As we go through, we've got another couple of episodes left for the year, so keep your eyes peeled, look after yourselves, and as always, stay safe, stay sane, and as you move towards Christmas, look after yourself and those around you. See ya.